You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals, employers, nor the official opinions of C19. What is it like to research 19th century America from outside the US and to teach 19th century and early American literature in Britain and Europe? I'm Katie McGettigan and I'm lecturer in American literature at Royal Holloway University of London. I'm Hannah Lauren Murray and I'm teaching fellow in early American studies at King's College London. And I'm Benjamin Pickford and I'm assistant professor in American literature at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And all three of us work on 19th century American literature outside of the United States and we're all on the steering committee of the British Association of 19th Century Americanists, otherwise known as Branca. In this podcast, we're going to reflect on the state of 19th century American studies in Britain and Europe. Our starting point is the 2017 Symposium of Branca, which was held at the University of Exeter in November, which addressed the theme of the not yet of the 19th century United States. So the first section of this podcast will explain the origins of Branca and the impetus for the symposium, and will reflect on some of the issues that arose. In the second section, scholars who attended the symposium offer their thoughts about teaching 19th century American literature outside the US. And, drawing from the pedagogy roundtable at the symposium, we will discuss the place and purpose of the survey course. In the final section of the podcast, scholars at the conference offer their thoughts on the particularities and potential drawbacks or benefits of researching 19th century Americanist topics outside of the United States. Branco is a UK-based network of researchers engaged in progressive interdisciplinary scholarship concerning American writing in the long 19th century. Our mission is to foster a community of scholars from undergraduate students to tenured and professorial staff interested in drawing on the vast potential of 19th century American texts to intervene in a variety of discourses and pressing issues. So rather than representing a single critical direction, Branca is a collective centred on human and digital interaction and collaboration, which amplifies discussion and debate in American literary studies. You can find us online on Twitter at Branca UK, and our website is www.branca.org.uk. 19th century American studies appears to have undergone an expansion in Britain in the past decade, with a new generation of early career scholars taking up posts, often to teach on expanding or sometimes entirely new American literature degree programmes. This expansion of 19th century American studies, building on a core of established researchers in Britain, was the main impetus behind Branca. Founding committee member Hilary Emmett, lecturer in American studies at the University of East Anglia, explains here. There had been a kind of critical mass um, of 
young 19th centuryists um, kind of coming on to the UK market who seemed to be getting more purchase, I guess, in, in being hired. So there were, there were four or five of us who had recently, recently been hired in the UK um, who were all interested in the same kinds of things. At the same time, C19 was coming into being and seemed to, again, have kind of generated a lot of really positive energy around the 19th century, um, which meant that it seemed that for once this was not going to be the poor cousin to the 20th century and the contemporary, which I think in literary studies have dominated the way we've thought about American literature, um, certainly in the UK, as a response to kind of student interest and, mm-hmm. and student demand. Um, so in that respect, there's this kind of um, serendipitous moment of a couple of us who happen to know each other, happen to be sort of intimately involved in the same office space um, <laughs> with that kind of, you know, intimate distance between us and and the United States and feeling very intimately involved in the generation of C19 and wanting to, to be part of that. Following its formation in 2012, Branca's first event took the form of a symposium at the University of Sussex in 2013, in which leading scholars from the UK and the US spoke on a series of provocations around the twin poles of aesthetics and politics. Biennial symposia in 2015 and 2017 at Warwick and Exeter have continued in bringing together scholars from both sides of the Atlantic to discuss provocations and keywords in the field. More on our 2017 symposium shortly. Between biennial symposia, Branca runs a series of smaller reading groups that run once a semester, hosted by different universities across the UK. These events offer the opportunity for sustained conversation around a primary text, often from lesser studied authors, for example, Elizabeth Stoddard or Sutton Briggs, and paired critical materials on a particular theme. Small grants to our reading groups have enabled graduate and early career scholars to travel to these events. As a network, Branca also facilitates sponsored panels for larger conferences each year, for example, the British Association of American Studies, or BAS, the Society for the Study of American Women Writers, and the American Comparative Literature Association. BAS holds the largest American Studies conference in Europe, so the formation of Branca has really fostered a strong program of 19th century panels, highlighting the depth and breadth of the field. So we were all graduate students during the early years of Branca. Katie and Benjamin, what benefits have you taken from being part of Branca? Well, I think the thing that benefited me uh, definitely from the early years of Branca was seeing that there were people who were maybe between three and five years ahead of me in their career. So early career scholars who were going out and getting jobs in the field that I had decided to work in. Uh, when I started doing my PhD in 19th century American literature, I found it very difficult to find people who were working in the same field as me. Uh, but going to Branca, I could see that there, there was this community and there was this sense of a possible career progression, a track that I could follow. So as a scholar just starting out, that was really important. For me, um, as an ECR in UK University, um, Branca offered a space to develop the specialisms of my research interests. Um, so there's a scarcity of 19th century Americanists working in UK universities, and those people who do work on 19th century American literature in UK universities tend to have to work fairly generally in terms of their pedagogy and in terms of their role within the department. 
Branka permits us a space to discuss the more niche and particular aspects of each of our research areas um, in a collegiate environment, and it offers a space to refine the kind of intellectual rigour and definition of those interests with a group of other people who work in the same field but who we don't necessarily come into contact physically with, except at rare conferences. I think that's probably been the biggest effect for me. And Hannah, what about you? Uh, well, I moved um, between institutions from my master's to my PhD. So for me, Branca has been the best way to meet other graduate students and early career researchers in a small field, because there's often only one or two people uh, in your department who work in a similar area. But I definitely stress with Branca, there's been this real sense of egalitarianism that's fostered between postgraduates and staff. And this in part has been supported by the travel grants that Branca provides, meaning that postgraduate um, students can travel to events like our reading groups that aren't normally funded by their departments. Our third biennial symposium, the Not Yet of the 19th Century US, was held in November 2017 at the University of Exeter. Not Yet gestures to the renewed and growing interest in the variety of politically imminent imaginaries that increasingly defines scholarship concerning long 19th century US literature and culture. At the symposium, we spoke to organiser Peter Riley, lecturer in American literature at Exeter, about the impetus behind the theme. We work in a field uh, and we work in an era where you know, different alternative future imaginaries uh, had not been consolidated within homogenous empty time yet, uh, within the, the, you know, the, I suppose the, the, the capitalist paradigm had not yet quite concretised. Um, and so looking back to the 19th century for ways of, I don't know, reconceiving our relationship to the present is, is maybe very broadly put that, that that is the motivation behind this conference. Um, so yeah, just raising an awareness, raising awareness, using our field, using our texts so as to demonstrate that uh, the historical, the capitalist neoliberal totality that we live in is permeable in all sorts of exciting imagining uh, and, and imagining questions. As Peter explains here, 19th century scholarship has a real political compulsion and urgency today. So the question, what might we do with our object of study, to think and talk about or even challenge the present moment, invited responses from speakers from the UK, US, France, Switzerland, Germany and Bulgaria. Panels and keynotes engage with the multiple temporal, spatial and social imaginaries that produced alternatives to the linear empty time associated with the rise of US nationalism and imperialism in the 19th century. As Agnieszka Soltysik-Monet, Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of Lausanne notes, she was surprised to see just how much more diverse the thinking about time was in the 19th century than what we do now. Agnieszka's keynote on utopian and apocalyptic thinking in the 19th century drew on these diverse and alternative ways of figuring time. This focus on the speculative and not yet was reflected in a number of panels, such as unrealised race, utopian visions and radical futures. But the symposium did not just consider the depiction or formation of time in literature itself, 
but also addressed issues of periodization and the temporalities of reading. For example, in his keynote, Lloyd Pratt, Professor of American Literature at the University of Oxford, discussed free or uncritical reading, an anti-institutional practice, yet one with its own pedagogical tradition and purpose. The panels, material circulation and new periodizations of the 19th century also considered reading practices in archives at home or as scholars and experts in the field. The Branca Symposium also featured a pedagogy panel. Its inclusion reflects the way in which Branca views scholarship as an activity involving teaching as well as research. Sharing and reflecting on our teaching practice is at the heart of what we do in Branca. We currently have a developing collection of 19th century American syllabi on our website, displaying courses ranging from imagining the Pacific to American sensations to transatlantic rhetoric. This discussion of pedagogy has also become increasingly important due to shifts in higher education policy in the UK that have placed more emphasis on teaching. For example, the UK government has recently introduced what they are calling the Teaching Excellence Framework, which uses a series of metrics to classify universities on the basis of their success in teaching. This therefore feels like a very important moment to reflect on what we do in the classroom. The Pedagogy Roundtable at Exeter featured contributions from Duncan Farty of Queen's College and the Graduate Centre CUNY, Stephanie Palmer of Nottingham Trent University, and Hilary Emmett of the University of East Anglia. One thread that I felt led their contributions together was reflections on the position of the survey course. Survey courses, I think, operate quite differently, can operate quite differently, in the US and the UK. In the UK, our survey course is less likely to be US literature to 1800 or to 1865 uh, than US literature to 1900, or perhaps just even American literature overall across both 19th, 20th and 21st centuries. There's also the case that at some institutions, uh, the American Literature to 1900 course won't be a general course that students take at the start of their university careers, but might be a special option that they take at the end in their final year, and also might be the first and only place in which they have a chance to encounter American literature uh, in the 19th century across their whole university career. Duncan kicked off the pedagogy panel by reflecting on the Just Teach One project that he founded with Ed White that works to introduce a wider range of early American texts into the classroom. Duncan suggested that, in the US, the survey course could be a place for innovation, especially for the early career and contingent faculty who may not be given space to devise their own courses. I felt that his point really resonated with conditions in the UK, where hourly paid staff are often also given survey courses at short notice, with relatively little freedom to innovate. Stephanie then spoke about recent changes to the survey course at her own institution, Nottingham Trent. Uh, she spoke about the problem that uh, in her institution, 19th century American literature was the first thing that students encountered when they arrived at university. Uh, so at a point where they're already struggling with the transition between what's expected from them at school and what's expected from them at university, they're also being presented with texts and contexts that are entirely unfamiliar because UK students generally won't have studied 19th century US literature or history at school. Stephanie uh, showed us how Nottingham Trent had responded to those issues by updating their survey course to make it a thematic 
cross period course that covered the 19th and 20th centuries. And she reflected on the fact that while that had, while those changes had created some concerns about the identity and the ownership of the course, it had also allowed students to make exciting connections across genres, texts and periods. Hilary Emmett then concluded by examining the disconnect between the terminology used in syllabi or course booklets, as we sometimes call them in the UK, and how our students and sometimes how we as educators feel about the texts that we encounter in the classroom. Syllabi talk about students gaining understanding and mastery of a text, while the experience in the classroom is often one of bewilderment. Hilary spoke about how she had tried to channel those feelings of confusion and of lack of understanding into her assessments. For example, she discussed how, rather than asking students to write a traditional essay, she got them to write introductions to the text that they were studying, asking them to explore what they themselves would have wanted to know before they started their studies. After the Pedagogy Roundtable, I took the opportunity to talk to two colleagues who have taught in both the US and Britain about whether or not they found a difference between teaching American and British undergraduates 19th century American literature. So this is Stephanie Palmer, Senior Lecturer in 19th century American literature at Nottingham Trent University, and Jay Michelle Coughlin, Lecturer in American literature at Manchester University. And it's Stephanie who speaks first. I don't think there's that much of a difference. Occasionally students may, you may encounter a particular type of resistance um, here that you wouldn't get at home, which is one of my students concluded a seminar on um, jo uh, Jonathan Edwards, Sinnerson, Hansel, Angry God, and said, well, I'm neither colonial nor American, so none of this means very much <laughs> to me. But I think you get that in the States too, because the 19th century and the 18th century are so far away. So I, I don't think this means a difference. For me, I would say that there is a pretty big difference. I mean, just the fact that my students typically have done very, very little American history before they come into American studies. Um, they often have fallen in love with the great Gatsby, um, but that's sort of the extent of their knowledge of American <laughs> literature, and particularly as American lit has been cut from what we would think of as high school, but you would think of as A-levels. Um, their knowledge base is much less. So I would say, you know, when we toss them in headfirst into Columbus's letters and want them to read through all of these Puritan sermons, um, the work I'm doing is really, really trying to excite them about things that they often have, you know, no entry point to. Um, also, I mean, they're constantly teaching me things about American culture because, for example, you know, your country is so much more secular than ours is, even though you have, you know, the a church. State church. Events, yeah. um, so often when we're doing things to do with actually sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, Many of my students will never have been to church. They know no one who's been to church, and they have no sense that that kind of evangelical sermonizing could have resonance for Americans even now. So I often have to show them clips from YouTube just to sort of shock them about the fact that, um, however you feel about this, <laughs> these structures really continue in ways that I think are alienating a little bit for British students. Hannah, is there anything in what uh, Michelle and Stephanie were saying there that resonates with your experience of teaching? Uh, well, I would agree with what Michelle said about kind of the geographical distance. And I found that the geographical distance and, and uh, from the US really amplifies the unfamiliarities 
that students might have with the 19th century so that British students are even further removed from 19th century America and early America um, from this lack of historical knowledge that they have and that they don't um, receive in secondary school. Um, and this can be quite a problem if you're taking a historicist approach to literature, which we often do with 19th century literature and early American literature, in that a lot of the time in lectures, you can spend quite a significant amount of time explaining historical context before you can even think through the text properly. And I found this to be the case in my early American literature survey course to second year students in that, especially as a lot of these texts are nonfiction, different genres of nonfiction, but still nonfiction, uh, they merge and blur with historical texts. And so that I have to spend a lot of time explaining references to students before we can think about the literary techniques and ideas that are present in the text. Hmm. And Benjamin, you're now teaching at a university in Switzerland. Is that different again? It is in a number of ways, which some of which I, were, I was not expecting when I got here. So first of all, many of my students here have studied at international schools in Switzerland. And because the curricula of such schools varies so widely across Switzerland, unlike the top-down national curriculum which is in place in the United Kingdom, many of my students have much more familiarity with um, American texts and key 19th century events in um, American history, uh, such as the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Emancipation of Slaves, um, the 19th Amendment, the Great Depression, etc., these students have much more familiarity with some of these topics than I've been used to in the United Kingdom. But finally, I think the key difference for me is that this English department is not conditioned by a surrounding Anglophone culture. It doesn't therefore prioritise um, the national tradition of Anglophone writings. And so it emphatically defines English literature as Anglophone literature, meaning that American literature occupies just as much room as British literature, for instance, um, from the 19th century onward in all the broad historical surveys that we teach here. And what about you, Katie? Um, well, one thing that struck me as, as perhaps the difference between students in Britain and students in the US, although I've not taught in the US myself, um, is the fact that British students don't see American literature as, as a default choice, as something that they will inevitably encounter or as the norm. Um, so when I asked my students on my uh, course, Introducing American Literature to 1900, whether that, why it was that they, they chose the course, they come up with words like, oh, it looked unusual, it looked different, it's not what we did at school. Um, and then I throw them into the Puritans and then they start wondering why they did this course at all. Um, but I also get a lot of international exchange students, I think, for the same reason, in that it's, it's something that they, they don't get to study at home and that they think it looks international and exciting. Um, I also think that this idea that they're studying something outside of what they deem to be the traditional curriculum uh, means that you sometimes get a more intellectually curious student, um, a student who's chosen to stray away from obvious choices and who's chosen to throw themselves into something that they might not know much about. What? Is it like to research Americanist topics outside of the United States? Many of the scholars teaching 19th century American studies in European universities are themselves from the United States and have background in US universities. 
At the Branca Symposium, I broached the question of what defines being an Americanist in Europe and what makes it distinct from the United States. First, there are naturally some negative aspects. This is J. Michelle Coughlin, lecturer in American literature at the University of Manchester. There's a certain sense for some British Americanists, and I think actually the longer that I'm here, the more I see that they're right to perhaps feel this way, that often American Americanists in the US don't actually attend to very much of the Americanist scholarship happening in Europe or the UK, mm-hmm. even when it's excellent. So there's a certain beleagueredness that's there, um, which I think initially I thought was um, caustic humor, but actually I've come to recognize that as perhaps one of the failings that we do have um, in the American system that we, you know, we often don't read journals that are happening elsewhere or articles that are happening um, elsewhere. But the unique set of demands of pedagogical requirements can lead to a difference in perspective. This is Stephanie Palmer, Senior Lecturer in American Literature at Nottingham Trent University. Well, I think a British Americanist is more likely to have to teach the entire American literary tradition from the beginning to the present day. Uh-huh. And so, like someone at a small liberal arts college or a small college in the States, you'd get a generalist perspective on things and you'd see past local internecine battles. Um, and I think that's what I associate with the British Americanists I've come into contact to with. Um, and I think that that's really refreshing. And the, the way one reason I stay is because I think that kind of approach, as, as much as we need to be specific and to say something, we need to burrow down and see something new about a specific body of evidence and so forth, that perspective that you get from teaching and from maybe supervising dissertations in very different fields, I think that's really positive. So, how do we start to define the characteristics of this perspective? It is perhaps reductive to assume that being outside of the nest of American studies, as it were, simply makes one a more critical and more acute scholar. Peter Riley, lecturer in American literature at the University of Exeter and the organiser of this Branca Symposium, took this view. I suppose the stock response is going to be uh, you, as working outside national national borders, you can look back in with a, an alternative perspective. Uh, is that true? Does that really hold water? Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it does. Yeah. I mean, good scholarship can happen anywhere. I think uh, maybe that's been facilitated uh, by by the digital humanities uh, revolution. No, no, that, that makes digital humanity sound more radical than it than it is. It's, it, you know, it's obviously there are various problems with that statement. Um, I think I think my, my scholarship has been facilitated, and my teaching has been facilitated by incredible digitization projects. The making of America probably being the most useful. Uh, so primary research uh, is is absolutely possible, even in Devon. Digitization has unquestionably decentered area studies. And Peter is surely right that this only helps scholars who don't have ready access to archives and libraries to be able to produce excellent work from primary sources. The scepticism that a general advantage might be derived from being an Americanist in Europe should not preclude more specific elements from being emphasised. This is Mark Story, Assistant Professor in American Literature at the University of Warwick. I would say one thing which I have come to appreciate more and more is the fact that um, by not being 
as it were, naturalised to American culture, that you are completely defamiliarised from it in a way that makes it quite strange. And that that sense of it being strange, I think, is, is, is definitely a research advantage sometimes. So how might a persisting strangeness or unfamiliarity with American culture take even more specific forms? This is Lloyd Pratt, Drew Hines Professor of American Literature at the University of Oxford. One of the things that I've noticed is that there is a different institutional history that I think has some bearing on how people talk about American literature in this country as opposed to in the United States. I do think that the kind of the longer history of American studies as an area studies in the UK and in Europe um, means that different things happen in the context of American literary studies. So I think the bond of political science departments, for example, uh, is much tighter to history and English departments here than it would be in the United States. And even if you look at things like um, what American studies meant in the interwar period, I did a little bit of research at the Centro Studi Americani in Rome. And one of the interesting things about that center for American studies is that when it was first founded by industrialists, it was a center for the study of the Americas. Um, The fascist came to power. They uh, have a lot of correspondence with the fascist government, their restrictions on what they were doing. And then after the war, um, the correspondence shifts to being with the occupying U.S. forces. And at that point, it becomes much more focused on the United States. So just thinking about the kind of old world, new world relationship, rather than strictly thinking of the United States as America, I think is an interesting problem in this country, just as it is in the United States, but from a different perspective. And so political estrangement and its nuances necessarily feeds back into cultural and area studies. And there are distinct ways in which this speaks to recent preoccupations in American studies. The desire to make American studies transnational and transcultural, for instance, is surely facilitated by working outside of the United States. This is Agnieszka Soltysik Monet, Professor of American Literature at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. You also are able to go in and out of American culture and just see things in a little bit more relative way, which again, I think gives you perspective. So I found it extremely beneficial to be doing uh, American studies from abroad and also it, it helps bring in other cultural perspectives, which is what American studies is trying to do, and especially new American studies, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult to decenter uh, that object and to see it in a network of nations, in a network of, of, of global cultures, and I think it's just a lot easier to do that from outside. And finally, embeddedness in alternative institutional and cultural networks perhaps necessarily makes for a different kind of American studies. This is Lloyd Pratt again. I think that there is also something important about having the capacity to meet and talk to and read the work of um, scholars from other countries working on the United States. It expands your sense of the possibilities of intellectual work. I think that American literary studies in particular in your work and the work of other people um, who were at Bronca this week, this weekend, um, There's a kind of interesting interweaving of historical, um, philosophical, theoretical, literary readings that um, doesn't feel constrained by convention in the way that sometimes can be the case in the U.S. context. Um, 
there aren't as many set rules about what can be said and what can't be said. And I think also because so many people in the UK do read in a second or a third language, there's much more contact with um, contemporary critical writing and theoretical writing in France and Italy and Germany. And I think that that ends up making its way into how we talk about American literature in the UK, even you know, in an Anglophone country, it still informs what happens here. So you just heard the reflections of the speakers attending the symposium on the differences of conducting Americanist research in Britain and Europe. Katie, what are your um, reflections on conducting Americanist research in the UK? Uh, well, I think the thing that strikes me is that my research, and especially my current project, draws heavily on archival sources. Uh, digitization uh, of archives has helped me a lot, obviously, but I still needed to make several trips to the United States to, to do the primary research for my work. Uh, and although these trips are expensive and they're time consuming and they're something that I've had to plan quite carefully around, uh, I think having to do these trips has actually really helped my career more broadly. And like some of my colleagues, for example, in, in 19th century British literature who have relatively easy access to their archives, I've been forced to apply for funding from very early on, which gave me a stronger CV in UK terms because in our academic culture, getting grant money, getting research, external research money is really important. It was also on those trips that I really began to feel like a proper Americanist. I felt like I'd earned my stripes in the archive, um, which, was, which was a good feeling for me. But I think perhaps uh, raises some questions still about how we define scholarship, whether there's still something quite narrow about our conception of what scholarship is. And also that uh, much as we might talk about productiveness of, of distance, uh, that perhaps I personally still feel that proximity to sources still can hold some sway. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion of 19th century American studies outside the US. And we're always keen to welcome scholars from the US to events held by Branca. For more information, you can check out the Branca website, which is www.branca.org.uk. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Branca UK, and you can join our mailing list through the website. And we also advertise our events on the C19 listserv. I've been Katie McGettigan. I've been Hannah Lauren Murray. And I've been Benjamin Pickford from London and Lausanne. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the C19 podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.